Let's now turn in our Bibles to Hebrews 9, verses 23 to 28. Hebrews 9, 23. We'll read here of the only sacrifice for our salvation. The only sacrifice. The only perfect sacrifice for our salvation. 9.23 Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood, not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of Christ. We know that His sole, solitary sacrifice is sufficient for our salvation. He alone. We pray, Father, that you'll teach us to believe in this sacrifice with our whole heart and to proclaim it. We pray also that you'll prepare us by this sacrifice, not only to prepare ourselves for this time of the return of Christ and day of judgment, but to enable others to do the same. We come to you because we know this is your word. We know, Lord, that your spirit accompanies your word. And so, Father, may your word and your spirit work in us to produce more holiness, righteousness, truth in every way. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, we come to another passage once more in our study of Hebrews, where the Apostle is emphasizing and reiterating time and again that we must understand the proper relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If we do not understand this, then we miss the Gospel completely. We miss the Gospel completely if we do not understand the correct relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this chapter and in chapter 10, for the first part of the chapter, he will emphasize the proper understanding of the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament, the blood sacrifices to the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ is better, superior, in an infinite way to all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were only signifying, were only illustrating, were only typifying, were only examples of what Christ would do. What Christ would do is the most important thing in perspective of the Old Testament saints as they look forward to the death of Christ. For us, if we may call ourselves New Testament saints, for us, as we look back to the sacrifice of Christ, that is the only thing the only sacrifice, the only thing that is pleasing in the sight of God for our redemption. This is the way it is. In the middle of history, if we may say gen generally speaking, in the middle of history, Christ came. In the time preceding His coming, 
they look forward to his death. After he has come, we look back to his death, and all successive generations, future to us, the Lord delaying his return, all those generations will look back for their salvation. Their salvation, in other words, does not reside in anyone or in anything, any philosophy, any religion, nothing and no one except Jesus Christ. God loves his son so much. God the Father loves his son so much. And his son is deity and humanity, perfect humanity in one person, in one individual. This is such a perfect and supreme, excellent person and sacrifice that it would be an affront to the glory of God. It would be an affront to the will of God and the purpose of God to even imagine that we could contribute anything to salvation. That we as individuals in, within Christianity could contribute anything to our salvation. And even those in other religions could think and imagine that they could contribute anything to their own salvation. Now, with that in mind, let's go again to our passage to understand how he continues his argument. His argument he has made, in other words, in preceding verses. But he does so again. Let's see what he does again. When I say that, especially it's the first few verses of our passage, arguments that he has made before, but now he's going to speak of other issues as well. If we break up this passage, we may break it up in three parts. In From verses 23, 23 to 24, the location or the presentation, the location of the presentation of the sacrifice of Christ. Where did he present himself? He presented himself in heaven to God. And then in verses 25 and 26, 25 and 26, we have the frequency of the sacrifice or the solitary nature of the sacrifice. It was one sacrifice by one person. So the nature of the sacrifice is in verses 25 and 26. And then the result of the sacrifice, 27 and 28. The consequence or the result in verses 27 and 28. We have, again, we have the nature of the sacrifice. We have uh, the location of the sacrifice, the nature of the sacrifice, and the consequence of the sacrifice. Verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. He says to us that it was necessary for the copies. The copies he means, just like he says in verse 24, a copy or a mere copy. The copy was on the earth, in the tabernacle of Moses, in the temple of Solomon, rebuilt by Zerubbabel and restored by King Herod. This, these temples and the tabernacle of Moses... These all were copies. There he's using another term. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says that the shadow of the good things to come. A shadow, a type, a copy, that's what the tabernacle of Moses was. That's what the sacrifices were. They were not the source of salvation, but they were copies of the source of salvation. They were illustrations and shadows of the source of salvation. If it was necessary for those objects to be cleansed, if it was necessary for those objects 
to be sprinkled with blood, to be sprinkled with water. If it was necessary for them to be cleansed, because God commanded that to be the case, then doesn't the ultimate sacrifice have a cleansing nature? Doesn't it have a cleansing purpose? The ultimate sacrifice is the sacrifice of Christ. Doesn't his sacrifice cleanse? And he says yes. He says the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. He says whatever is represented in heaven is also cleansed. But is the ultimate, eternal, infinite, heavenly things, heavenly realities going to be cleansed by an animal's death? Is it going to be cleansed by the blood of an animal? No. Because animals are right here. They will never get to heaven. When they offer the animal sacrifices as dead animals, they never reach heaven. But who did reach heaven? Christ did. Christ went into heaven. It says in verse 24, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ did not go into the tabernacle of Moses. Christ did not go into the temple of Solomon. When he came in his incarnation, he did not enter those buildings. He did not go into the temple of his own generation, the restored, renovated temple of Herod, rebuilt by Zerubbabel. He did not go into that place. He did not go into the most holy place of that place because he was not a priest according to the line of Aaron. He was not of the tribe of Levi. So he did not go into that physical building to offer a sacrifice. He did not go into that physical building, which was a copy. It was a mere copy of the true one. Christ did not go into those places. Certainly he went to the temple, into the place that was for the rest of the people, but he did not go into the place that was the most holy place, or into the holy place, because only the Levites could go into the holy place, and in the most holy place, the sons of Aaron could enter there. Jesus didn't go. But where did he go? When he offered himself, where did he go? It says, in the presence of God for us. He went into heaven. This is why the ascension of Christ is so crucial to all of Christian theology. This is why in the old creeds and confessions of the faith, they always mention his ascension. Why do they mention his ascension? They mention his ascension because it is by proof that he actually rose from the dead by eyewitnesses. They see him actually go into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father because there as a perfect, unblemished sacrifice without any sin, he presents himself to the Father. When he presents himself to the Father that way, in his ascension, it is here guaranteeing and manifesting to us that he appeared in the presence of God for us. It's not just to show another miracle. His ascension is not just to display another miracle, but to display this miracle for us, for our benefit, for us to know that this was necessary and this was accomplished. It actually was the case that he went up into heaven in the presence of eyewitnesses. He appeared in the presence of God for us. As it says in chapter 1 of Hebrews, having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of the throne on high. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. This is what he did. He entered into heaven. 
No man has entered into heaven with his own blood. No animal has entered into heaven, but Jesus did. He entered into heaven. Is that not superior? So if that's superior, then why trust in anything else? Why trust in anyone else? Don't trust in anyone. Jesus did that. Nobody else did that. No one of any other religion has done that. Even the true religion of the Old Testament. No animal has done that. No priest of Aaron has done that. No tribe of Levi, no one in the tribe of Levi has done that. No kings of Israel has, has, has ever done that. Israel or Judah has ever done that. David did not do that. Nor did any of the prophets do that. None of the prophets did that. None of the prophets died by living a perfect life, died on the cross, or died in any such way to pay the penalty and then ascend into heaven. None of the prophets did that. Only Christ. One clarification, when it says in verse 23, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, the better sacrifices, in the plural, is a reference to Christ. That's all he means. He doesn't mean that Jesus was sacrificed again and again and again, or that Jesus offered himself and also animals or something like that, that there were a multiplication of sacrifices that Christ offered. He doesn't mean it that way. All he's doing is using a contrast because he said that the copies of the things, the earthly temple needed sacrifices, so he's just using the same plural to contrast it with the sacrifice of Christ. That's what he's doing. Another thing that he is doing is showing the excellency of the sacrifice of Christ. Because it is a part of Hebrew idiom, of the Hebrew Old Testament. It is a part, in certain cases, to use the plural of a noun to express the excellency of that noun. It is a matter of Hebrew grammar or, or Hebrew idiom of the Old Testament to use the plural to emphasize the superior nature of the thing we're discussing. And this is also likely what he's doing when he says, with better sacrifices than these. He's not saying Jesus died again and again, or that Jesus offered himself and other people and other things, other animals. All of that was necessary. He's not saying anything like that. He's not implying anything like that. We must say that, we must clarify, because in Christianity over the years, there are certain churches, or specifically like the Catholic Church, that believes that Jesus needs to be offered again and again in the Mass as an unbloody sacrifice. This is how they make this subtle distinction, which is actually a devilish distinction. It's a subtle, devilish distinction. They say, oh yes, we believe Jesus died once as a bloody sacrifice. He shed his blood. But now, each time we offer um, or pray over the Mass and the elements in the Mass, when we pray, now we have an unbloody sacrifice, which is necessary and which God instituted. And this verse is used by them as proof that there must be repeated sacrifices of Christ. No. This is a very slick and subtle way in which they are diminishing the value, the ultimate, once for all, immense value of the death of Christ. The singular, solitary, momentary death of Christ 2,000 years ago. That's what they are doing. 
We should not think that. That's not what's happening at all. We are not making Jesus' sacrifice better and better. Or we're not offering an unbloody sacrifice now because there's only one sacrifice that should ever be on the minds of the people of God. That is the blood sacrifice, the bloody sacrifice of 2,000 years ago. Further, verse 25. Nor was it that he should suffer uh, should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In verse 25, he says, it's not a frequent sacrifice. It's not a frequent sacrifice, but it is a one-time sacrifice. Not a frequent one, but a one-time sacrifice. The high priest would enter the holy place year by year with blood not his own. And when he says the holy place, this is another way of him referring to that inner sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant was, the most holy place. Here he simply calls it the holy place. And, and this phrase is used variously in the, in the ancient literature and in, in the Bible. The holy place may just be a reference to the whole of the temple, or it may be a reference to a certain part of the temple. And in this case, by context, he's talking about the year-by-year -year sacrifice. That is, the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. He says, Jesus' sacrifice is not like that. He doesn't have to go year-by-year. He does not even have to go daily. He doesn't have to go monthly or seasonally. He doesn't have to go at any time like that. He just does it once. He just does it once. Only once. And he goes with his own blood, not with the blood of animals. His own blood and without the blood of animals. This clearly shows the superiority of the offering of Jesus Christ of himself, his own body. He says, if it was necessary for Jesus to die repeatedly, then why did he not do so often since the beginning of the world? Notice verse 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He offers himself only once and if we say it must be repeatedly done, then why did he not repeatedly do it since the beginning of the world, since the foundation of the world, since the time of Adam and Eve? Why did he not do it since the time of Adam and Eve? He didn't do it since the time of Adam and Eve because in the fullness of the time, Galatians 4.4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in the fullness of the time. In God's ordained time, in his purposes in history and prophecy, he brought Jesus into the world, which was 2,000 years ago from our vantage point, 2,000 years ago. And so this is why it happened. Or we might say, 4,000, from 4,000 BC, from the time of Adam until the time of John the Baptist and the apostles, he waited 4,000 years. He did not die in the time of Adam, every year, or every month, or every week, or every day. It was not necessary. He died only one time, 
to show that it was the only thing necessary. He not only wants to show that it was the only thing necessary for our salvation. Notice, he's already told us in verse 15 that what Jesus did applies to all of the righteous people from Adam until the time of Christ. He told us in verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant in order that sins and death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Right there in verse 15, he says, A death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. He's speaking of the Mosaic Old Covenant in the Old Testament. This death, the death of Christ, applies to them. It applies to them. And that's why he says in verse 26, it was only necessary one time. Not since the foundation of the world, but only one time. Furthermore, he uses a phrase here, the consummation of the ages. The consummation of the ages, or the ends of the ages, or the last days. These last days, for clarification, these last days are not just our days, that is, just our generation. But these last days, according to chapter 1, verse 2, it says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. Or, as he says in here, our verse 926, it says, at that once time he died, at the consummation of the ages. The consummation of the ages, the last days, the end of the days, these days began with the first coming of Christ. So from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, biblically speaking, this is the ends of the ages, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Or here, the consummation of the ages. Or in Hebrews 1, 2, the last days. It is between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. The last days. And in this period, only one sacrifice. Not multiple sacrifices of different individuals. Not multiple sacrifices of just uh, only Christ. No, only one sacrifice of the person of Christ. He sacrificed himself. And it is by this that he put away sin. He took care of sin. He took on his own person, his own body, he bore the penalty of our sin. Our sins right on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be the sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Christ who knew no sin to be the sin offering. The sin offering, just as the sin offering of the Old Testament, the animal was dying in the place of the worshiper who presented that animal in the temple. The animal died in the place of the worshiper. In the same way, instead of us dying and being con condemned forever, Jesus dies in our place and we are released from death. We do not experience the penalty of eternal death, the second death, because Jesus has taken that for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. This is what John the Baptist preached. And then finally, what has he accomplished 
forever for us. What has he accomplished? What is the consequence and result of this? Verse 27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. 27. He reminds us all that there is a day of judgment. We must understand that a day of judgment awaits. God has presented a day of judgment. Therefore, he called on all men everywhere to repent, for he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, having appointed a man and having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that a day of judgment awaits, and Jesus will be that judge. He will be that judge. And he has declared this necessary for people everywhere to understand that the day of judgment awaits. In a sense, the various religions of the world understand that judgment awaits. In their weak and in their inaccurate ways, false ways, they understand judgment is yet to occur in one way or another, whether that's through reincarnation or through a, a day of judgment and the scales, the balance of the scales. If you just have a, a, a greater weight of good deeds than evil deeds, then you will get entered into paradise. The various religions of the world have some kind of concept like that. But the true concept is right here in the Bible that says that the only way to be prepared for that day of judgment is to be in Christ. And we all know that that will happen. This is what he's saying in 927. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. We die once, not millions of times, such as Hinduism and Buddhism. We only die once, and then comes judgment. We only die once, and then judgment. So, because we shall die only once, should we not prepare for the day of judgment? Should we not prepare for that day? Make sure that we are in Christ. Make sure we are right with God. Make sure that our friends, our loved ones, are all in Christ. Make sure by preaching. Make sure by being courageously preaching repentance to them. Courageously, boldly showing them the right way. That's what we should be doing. Just as the, as the Apostle Paul did to Felix, a Roman official, Felix and his wife, Drusilla. He did so in Acts 24, 24. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla and his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul, and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Paul preached repentance to him. He preached righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. We all must have righteousness, righteousness of Christ, self-control, which is another term for restraint and holiness, maturity, godliness in our life, and prepare for the judgment to come. We all need to have this. We all need to be prepared. And we should not be like Felix who says, go away from me, and if I want to hear this again, I'll call you. No. What should Felix have done with his wife, Drusilla? They should have repented then and there and said, I want to be prepared for that day of judgment. 
because I don't know when I'm going to die. We do not know when we will die. It's not guaranteed that we will live to be 70 or 80 years old. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that we will have a slow death on our deathbed with acuteness, with keenness on our deathbed, the ability to think and to reason, the ability to communicate with other people, to hear and listen to concepts, religious concepts. There's no guarantee that all of that will occur. There is no guarantee. So it is appointed for men to die once, so therefore we should be ready for that day of judgment. The people of the world ridicule it. They sneer. They sneer and ridicule this concept of a day of judgment. That God will judge the world in Christ. Christ himself will be the ultimate judge of all men. They ridicule it. But we should not. When we hear it, we should be overjoyed. We should say, oh, thank, thank you, Lord, that I am ready for that day. Not because of my own goodness, but because of the goodness and the righteousness and the perfection of Christ. That has been applied to me. Because I am a new creature in Christ. Old things pass away, behold, new things have come. Because of this reason, I am ready for that day. We all need to be ready for that day in this way. So he says, if we are in Christ, what awaits us? Notice verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Christ came the first time with reference to sin. That means to pay the penalty of sin by his death. So when he comes again, he's not going to come again to pay the penalty of sin. But now he's going to be coming for those who eagerly await him. Our sins have already been paid. He has already borne the sins of many. He's already done that. But when he comes a second time, He's not going to do anything related to that, but he's going to come to unite with us for salvation to those who eagerly await him. The full experience of salvation, not the deposit, not the earnest money of our salvation, which we enjoy now, but the full experience, the full inheritance, the full pleasure of being in the presence of God, the full worship of God, for all eternity, that is what awaits us. Being in the presence of our Lord and Savior, the one who redeemed us, the one who loved us, the one who poured out his blood on our behalf. We will be with him forever. We will be with him. That's the salvation he's meaning here. Without reference to sin, without any condemnation, without any, any kind of pain or torment or turmoil, nothing like that will occur to us. When Jesus returns, it's not going to be purgatory. It's not going to be anything like that. When Jesus comes, he's going to come to say, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your master. When he comes, he's going to come to receive us. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, there you may be also. That where I am, there you may be also. That's it. It doesn't matter. Wherever I can be in the full experience of the presence of God, then nothing else matters. It doesn't matter. I don't need to speculate. 
I don't need to wonder how many angels can sit on the head of a needle. I don't need to speculate like that. Human perverseness in their speculations. They love to speculate as to what's going to happen for all eternity. They love to speculate on the heavenly and spiritual things. No, we're not going to have to be concerned about anything. It doesn't matter. I'm going to be in the presence of Christ. I'm going to be with my Savior. And nothing else matters. If that means I'm going to worship Him forever, then that's it. It doesn't matter. That's what I want to do anyways. That's what I like to do at least once a week anyways, right? Be in the presence of God. So that's what he's saying here. He's going to come a second time for salvation to those who eagerly await him. We must eagerly await him. This is the kind of joy, this is the kind of anticipation that should be in each of us. We are looking for this. We are looking, as it says in 2 Peter 3.13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are looking for this. We are in anticipation of this. We are hoping for this. We are overjoyed to think that we will be gone from this wicked world and the world to come will be superior because no more sin, no more evil, no more injustice, no more betrayals, no more slander, no more greed, no more sin of any kind and the consequences of that misery and death. Furthermore, when he says, to those who eagerly await him, this also implies holiness and righteousness. 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, 28. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. When he appears, we want to be those like the faithful slave who received five talents of money and he did right with it and made for himself five more. He was faithful and he had great confidence and enthusiasm. He eagerly awaited for the return of his master and he did not have to shrink away in shame. He did not have to say like the one who buried the talent, the one talent, and would not do anything with it. He does not have to be like that wicked, lazy slave and then be punished in shame, shrink away from him in shame. No, he was faithful because he practiced righteousness just as Jesus is righteous. And 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Because we will be just like Christ when he appears. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Verse 2 says, <laughs> Therefore, because we put our hope in that, we eagerly await him, we purify ourselves just as he is pure. Purifying ourselves does not mean purifying uh, ourselves by ourselves, but purifying ourselves for our benefit by the grace of Christ, by the Spirit of grace, by the Word of grace. This is how we do it. By His power working in us. If we believe in the death of Christ, it is the only sacrifice for our salvation. Let's eagerly await Him. 
Let's not be lazy. Let's not be double-minded. Not, let's not be unstable in faith, but be strong in faith, growing in maturity day by day, eagerly awaiting it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.